Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them to your children. You shall bind them as signs on your hands. And you shall place them as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them. Write them. On the doorposts of your house. And on your gates. You know what that is? It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9. And what that is, is a vision for the family. A God-enthralled, Bible-saturated, highly intentional, father-initiated, super-strategic, and profoundly practical vision for the family in which the gravitational center and nuclear reactor of everything that family is and does is anchored. On the word. In other words, a God-filled family is a word-filled family. A God-centered home is a word-centered home. A home that displays and portrays and mediates the glory of God is a home that first delights and prizes and meditates on the word of God. Which is fascinating, don't you think? That, that long before the people of Israel ever had a king to lead them, they had fathers to lead them through their families. That long before God's plan for the royal family, that he gave his plan for the nuclear family. That long before God had given structure and shape and a vision for the kingdom, that he had given structure and shape and a vision for the home. That's incredibly significant. And you see, the reason Yahweh did that is because he knew, he understood that if his people were ever going to fulfill the mission that they were given, that if they were going to be a holy nation and a light to the world and a servant to the nations and a kingdom of priests, Yahweh knew that they had, that if global impact was ever going to happen and his glory was going to spread to the nations, that it had, it just had to begin in the home. With fathers. And not just fathers, mothers too. But Yahweh makes clear that the fame and glory of his name would only spread to the peoples of the world when men and women and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and families and singles experience two profound realities from the word of God. Power and pleasure. Strength satisfaction, holiness, and happiness. That's exactly what Psalm 119 contributes to the conversation. Is that what life change and transformation requires 
that what it takes to live a holy life that puts Jesus Christ on display are two fundamental properties. To be sanctified, you need sovereign power from God and you need supreme pleasure in God. Those two ingredients bake the cake of a holy life. Those two things are what fathers and mothers and everybody else needs to fulfill the mission given by God. And that's what Psalm 119 really needs dads to know, that what dads and men need for maturity and marriage and mentoring their children is found precisely in the book that you're holding in your hands. But the Bible isn't just some book that governs our morals but that it is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. Because Psalm 119, you know, it is a 176-line poem, and every single line in that poem is about one single solitary subject, namely the supremacy, the centrality, and the absolute sufficiency of the word of God. Consider that for a moment. That the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. That God is communicating through his word that the most important thing in life is his word. Psalm 119 is 176 reasons why the word of God should have the supreme and central place in our lives and in our affections. And among those 176 reasons is the fact that all the power and pleasure we need for true life change and transformation is supplied through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Because at the end of the day, it is like Calvin said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because it proceeds from him. That it is like Luther said, that if you want to hear God speak, all you need to do is read Holy Scripture. But you see, emotions are complex. Feelings are fickle. Only the word of God is certain and guaranteed. Like I said on Mother's Day, we don't technically have to do this. There's no apostolic mandate in the New Testament that says that we have to take a day and we have to think about fathers and manhood and, and, and what it means to be a dad. We don't have to do this, but we really want to. We want to because marriage and manhood and family and fatherhood are a massive deal in the word of God. And so I can't think of anything better to give you on Father's Day than to fixate our affections on the word of God. And man, I just want you to know I have zero, zero interest in debilitating you with guilt this morning, but rather, but rather in liberating you with the glory of the word. And so men, and husbands, and fathers, and everybody else, I want you to be power hungry this morning. I want you to be a pleasure seeker this morning. Because you understand that power and pleasure, strength and satisfaction, holiness and happiness. It's not either or, it's both and, and it's all there in the sacred text because that right there is the great win-win of the word of God. And so here we go. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three compelling reasons. Three compelling reasons why the scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Christ on display. That's where we're headed. Three compelling reasons why the scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Christ on display for dads and for everybody else. 
So the first compelling reason is this, number one, the unconquerable power supplied by God's word. The unconquerable power supplied by God's word. Because you know that one of the perennial questions asked by God's people throughout the ages is, how can men, and young men in particular, live holy and blameless lives? Isn't that the question? And you, because, because you understand, lust is an issue. And lust is not an issue just for the age of the internet. No, this is a topic of conversation that has concerned God's people for centuries and centuries and centuries. And no doubt, every single generation asked the exact same question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And not just young men, but middle-aged men and old men and husbands and fathers, and everybody else, how can one be pure? And we know we ask that question because that is the very question that the psalmist asks in verse 9. Look at the text. He says, how shall a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by keeping it according to your word. Notice the nature of his question. This is what he's asking. How do you slaughter the beast of lust and taste the pleasure of a holy life? How do you actually be holy instead of merely just want to be holy? How can your conscience be as clean as your internet history is another way to ask it. And when the poet says, how is this possible? He's not asking out of despair or curiosity. Rather, he's asking a rhetorical question for which he already has the answer. You see, he has undeniable evidence for how men and young men in, in particular can live holy lives free from the noose of sexual lust. See, he knows. He does not believe in sexual addiction the way it's currently defined. Because the way it's currently defined today and believed by many Christians is profoundly unchristian. There's no Christ or Bible in it at all. You see, sexual addiction today is generally understood to be this incurable malady rooted in the chemical and biological makeup or wounds in their past for which there is no cure. And therefore, many just assume that failure and unbroken patterns of lust are inevitable and incurable and therefore, at some level, excused and tolerated. This will not do, says the poet. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to throw in the towel with sexual lust. Why? Because, because God has not left us without arms. God has not imposed a standard of holiness for which he has not also provided the means to keep that standard, namely his word. And yet the question is, what does it mean for a young man or a father or anywhere, anyone else for that matter? What does it mean to keep their way pure? Well, what are we talking about when we're talking about purity? Well, you notice there, how does a young man keep his way, way pure? What, what does way mean? Well, way, you understand, that refers to the entirety of one's life, both hidden and seen, public and private, gripped by the majesty and worth of God. That's purity. See, it's not just that you keep the rules. 
No, purity is where you are so gripped by the transcendent majesty and worth and beauty of God that who he is shapes and governs and determines who you are in the most private, secret, secluded moments of your life when no one can see you except God. That is purity. That is holiness. So the question is, how can husbands and dads and everybody else be that in this life? How, how do you get into the ring and engage in mortal combat with the deepest temptations of your soul and emerge out of that ring as the champion? And the psalmist has an answer. An answer to the question that has plagued concerned moms for their sons and wives for their husbands for centuries. And the answer to the question, notice, he directs to God himself. How can a young man keep his way pure? Answer back to God by keeping it according to your word. And there it is. So simple, so profound. The answer to the perennial struggle of young men from every age, namely how to live a life unstained by sexual lust. And the answer, in fact, the only answer on the list is to live your life according to his word, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because how on earth can words on a page do anything to transform your life? How is that even possible? That doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense. Because you see, what we're talking about here is not just a piece of literature. We're talking about something utterly unique in the history of the world. We're talking about a portal. We're talking about a gateway. We're talking about a way to access the power and presence of God because that's exactly what the scriptures are. This isn't just some book. This is an encounter with the living, all-satisfying God through the words on the page. And I think you can tell this, and it is really profound, but the poet is not merely describing raw obedience here. A kind of suck it up and get it done moralism where the entirety of your lives is completely dependent upon your moral resolve or the power of the will. No, that is not what he's describing. Listen carefully. The word of God doesn't just contain the standard of holiness. It empowers the very holiness it commands. You see that? It energizes what it enforces. It creates what it commands. It delivers the very power you need to do what it demands. That's why this is so unique in human history. And so the implication then, listen carefully, the implication is if a young man longs to drink from the springs of holiness, if he longs to walk down the pleasure-filled path of piety and purity and he should want that, then that means that there has to be a particular kind of relationship to this book. And that relationship, listen carefully, entails nothing less than a desperate tenacious, IV drip line relationship to the word where it isn't just true, but a means of survival. Which means what? What does that look like? What does that, how does that look in actual real life situations? Well, you've played pinball, maybe. 
And the point of the game, I guess, is to keep the ball as present on the board as long as possible, isn't it? If you want to win at pinball, you have got to keep the ball constantly on the board, reacting to every situation, making every effort to sustain the presence of the ball. And that is precisely what the poet means when he says to keep your way according to God's word. You see, to be pure, the word of God has got to be pinballing around in your head all day long. You've got to keep the word present, always present in your mind, reacting to every situation, every temptation, every allurement with the power of the text. It's called meditation. That's exactly what Christ was talking about in John 15 when he said that his word must abide in you to unlock the purifying power of the sacred text. You not only must read the word. You must remember the word. You must recall the word. You must recite the word in real time and you must rely upon the power of the word. That is how you win. So husbands, fathers, men and everybody else, how are you doing with purity? How are you doing with sexual sin even at this very moment? Because although it feels like it, this is not the unpardonable sin, nor is it the unconquerable sin. You see, the hope-giving assumption of the poet is that because of the life-renovating supernatural power of the word, purity is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. All the power over sin that Christ procured with his death is mediated to you precisely through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. You can have what Christ purchased. It is there. It is yours for the taking. But you have got to have an IV drip line relationship to the word to unlock that and make that happen. But you see, one of the things we love about the psalmist, one of the things we so appreciate about him is that how unpretentious he was. In other words, this guy was not some self-righteous, pompous Pharisee who pretended like he never had a struggle in his life. No, this was a man who lived in the trenches. This is a man who had a profound sense of his own propensity to drift from God as the treasure of his soul. And so he cries this out in verse 10. Look what he says. He says, with all of my heart, I have sought you. And then he turns around and says, do not let me wander from your commandments. That's a bold claim, isn't it? With all of my heart, everything that I possibly am, I have sought you, God. Like, seriously? Really? It must be genuine because notice he declares his radical devotion to God himself. It must be true. But I'll have you know that that all of your heart language, that is straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, 29, you will find God when you seek him with all of your heart. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart. 
Chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God demand of you except to love Yahweh your God and to walk in his ways and to love him with all of your heart? And the poet's response is, I have done that. I live that. And that doesn't mean he never sins. But it does mean that he has truly sought Yahweh as the supreme, all-satisfying center of his life. You see, what, what some might call fanaticism, what some might call over-the-top extremism, the psalmist understands to be the only logical implications of having Yahweh as his God. It's the only thing that makes sense. And my question is, is that your understanding also? What I mean is, do you understand that the only logical implication of your salvation is radical devotion? What I'm asking is, do you understand that the life of faith in Christ is not merely that you get forgiveness and then you go on about your day, but that you become a slave of the one who bought you with his blood? Not that he treats us like a slave, but we are one nevertheless. We are the property and possession of another. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And so the question is, do you love him and seek him and treasure him with all of his heart through his son? Well, all of your heart through his son is what I'm asking. Or, or has the cold hand of apathy taken a hold of your life? Have you grown comfortable with a kind of choose-your-own Christianity? A kind of customized, self-served version of the faith that fits with your own convenience? Because I'll just tell you right now, if that's where you are, you are about two steps and a couple years away from total apostasy. But keep in mind, I'm not talking about people who struggle and fight. I'm not talking about people who struggle and fight and sometimes sin and lose and repent and seek to change. That's normal. That's right. That is normal Christianity. That is good. If it's hard, you're doing it right. But I'm talking about people who approach Jesus Christ with a casual indifference. And you can tell that you do or do not do that by the way that you respond to God's word. Because mark my words, how you treat and respond to the text is the barometer of how you feel about God himself. But just in case you thought the psalmist was a self-righteous, snobby jerk living in a dream world, notice, notice the, the truth of the matter in the second half of verse 10. Look what he says. With all of my heart, I have sought you. And then he turns right around and says, do not let me wander from your commandments. Do you see that? He had truly, genuinely, authentically sought Yahweh with all of his heart. This is a godly man, probably one of the godliest men in the history of the world. I'm not even kidding. And yet he understood that the power of his seeking lied not within the leaky bucket of his own human power, but ultimately in the sustaining, upholding, transforming power of God himself. That's why he follows up with, follows up, I have sought you, God, immediately with, do not let me wander from your commandments. Do you see what he's doing? He knows. He gets it. The Christian life is not like riding a bike. 
training wheels of grace never come off. Because understand that our fidelity and our faithfulness to Yahweh is not ultimately dependent upon the strength of our seeking, but on the strength of the one being sought. You see? This man had no illusions about his personal power and ability to seek Yahweh. Although fully responsible to live fully for the glory of God, he understood that the strength to do that very thing must ultimately come from God himself. You see, he knew, he was persuaded that all he was on his own by himself was prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And therefore he cries out, do not let me wander from your commandments. And my question to you is, do you pray this way? Do you pray the same kind of blood and guts, urgent intensity prayers where you plead with God to keep you close? Because you should. And you must. And if you really understand what it is that you are made of, you will. That's what we must pray. Our transformation and our sanctification depends upon blood and guts, urgent prayers, just like this, pleading with God to save us from ourselves. And I don't know if you've ever heard of alchemy. Ever hear of alchemy? used to be a thing. See, back in the Middle Ages, certain scientists thought that if they came up with the right process, the right elixir, the right combination of chemical compounds, that they could take ordinary metals like ore and iron and steel, and they could turn it into gold. It's a nice idea. But unfortunately, that is scientifically and chemically impossible. There is, however such a thing as spiritual alchemy. Spiritual alchemy. You see, the rusty, corroded desires that lurk in our souls for what is forbidden can be transformed into the polished gold of purity. And how that happens, listen carefully, how that happens is through the holy chemistry of meditation on the text. If you don't believe me, look what the poet says in verse 11. He says, in my heart I treasure your word, that I may not sin against you. Do you see the chemistry in the text? The ingredients for a holy life, there are four factors, there are four ingredients in the text of a Holy life, a transformed life. Number one, you have got to have the right action. You have to have the right action. Look what he says. In my heart, I treasure your word. Treasure. That's the operative word. And I know that maybe your version says store. I store your word, and that's fine. But this is not the kind of storing that you do when you store junk in the attic. This is not a neutral term. Rather, this is the kind of storing that you do that places items of great value in their own reserved and set-apart locations. This is something that is so valuable, that is, that is so priceless, that to leave it on the counter or leave it in a junk drawer somewhere would be to profane it. Treasure. 
Number two, second ingredient, you have to have the right object. The right object. You see, if you want the solid gold of polished purity, you have got to treasure the word. In my heart, I treasure your word. Number three, you have to have the right location. The right location, because you understand, it's not enough just to read God's word. It's not enough just to merely know some true things about God's word. Rather, you have got to have the word absorbed into the very bloodstream of your soul, which is precisely what the poet means when he talks about heart. In my heart, I treasure your word. And what does he mean by heart but saturation? What does he mean by heart but immersion? What does he mean except memorization? What does he mean but the ancient art of Meditation. That's exactly what he means. And what is meditation? What is that? But careful, rigorous, thinking about the text, reading it again and again and again until you master it. Or should I say, until it masters you. Which brings me to number four. If you want true life change and transformation, you have to have, number four, the right purpose. The right purpose. Notice what he says. In my heart, I treasure your word. Why? For what purpose? To what end does he say? That I may not sin against you. It's incredible. Because, you know, magicians, they never reveal their secrets, do they? But good theologians do. And you see, he just revealed one of the deepest secrets to radical holiness ever discovered in the history of the world, namely, that in order to not sin, you must love something more than sin. See that in the text, don't you? I treasure your word that I may not sin against you. Do you see the correlation? Treasuring, not sinning. Treasuring, not sinning. This is breathtaking. It takes treasuring the word to triumph over sin. It takes pleasure in the word to have purity in your life. The more the word is savored in the soul, the more that sin is slaughtered in your life. Do you see? You see, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied by Jesus Christ. Therefore, battle-wearied warfare against sin is fought in the trenches of a superior delight in Jesus Christ. See, when facing temptation, the question is not merely what is the right thing to do, question is, what is it that satisfies more? That's the question. Is it the sin? Is that, is that really what it is that satisfies the soul? Or is there something more than that? Is there something that triumphs over the pleasures of sin? And there is. And the answer, the only answer on the list is the Lord Jesus Christ himself in and through his word. That is the power Which brings us to the second compelling reason. 
Second compelling reason why the scriptures are absolutely essential. Number two, the uncontainable praise produced by God's word. The uncontainable praise produced by God's word. Because you know, you know, there are two activities that God demands of his people that are extremely hard for us. Two things that are very hard for us. Namely, praise and proclamation. Worship and witnessing. Those are really hard for us, if you think about it. And the reason why those are hard for us is because those two things directly confront the apathy of our souls. We don't have it inherently within us to do either of those kinds of things. And yet the sacred poet has a solution for that. You see, he understands that when it comes to praising God, he understands when it comes to proclaiming God, that one and the same fuel bring both of those things into being, and it is none other than the word of God itself. In other words, listen carefully, the fires of worship and passion for God are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. And the proof is found in verses 12 and 13. Look at the text. Look first at verse 12, talking about praise. He says, blessed are you, Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. You hear what he says there? Blessed are you. What is that? What does it mean to bless God? He has got it all wrong. He's got it all backwards. We are not the ones who bless God. God is the one who's got to bless us, Right? And yet you understand what this is, is worship. To bless God is worship. To bless God is praise. You see, he is extolling God as the fountain of life and the treasure of the soul. To bless Yahweh is the joyful declaration that Yahweh himself is the supreme blessing over and above all other blessings. The one who gives the blessing is the supreme blessing in the universe. Praise God from whom all blessings flow is the idea. That's the essence of what worship is. And yet, and yet, you know this because you have a heart that the epidemic of the human heart is that worship is not natural. It is profoundly supernatural, isn't it? Glad-hearted affections for God do not come from nowhere. They come from somewhere. You see, worship has to be generated and kindled and produced in the soul by something outside of the soul. I mean, you know that, right? And so isn't it interesting to you that the very next words out of the mouth of the psalmist are these. Look what he says. Blessed are you, Yahweh. In other words, I worship you, I praise you, I delight in you. And then he says, teach me your statutes. Teach me, Yahweh. I worship you. Teach me. What's the connection? What is the link between the first and second half of the verse? The link is, is that all true affection and prizing of God are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. That's the connection. That's the connection. See, he knows, and I hope you know, that all God, all glad-hearted desires for God are awakened and sustained and increased by the sacred text of Holy Scripture. To worship God, truth has to be encountered. 
all delight and love for God has to be created in the soul. Truth has to be understood. The word of God has to be experienced and savored and enjoyed. The word of God has to be taught, you see. And that right there is the solution to the universal dilemma of a cold and frigid heart, namely the soul-kindling power of the sacred text. You know that, right? And dads, I know... uh, level with you because I I lived there too. Um, You know, leading your family can feel like this vague, kind of ambiguous thing. And and no one can really seem to describe what it actually means to lead your family. But I, I do believe that Psalm 119 gives us a nudge. Psalm 119 gives us the coordinates and maybe even the essential coordinates. You see, Psalm 119 is 176 instructions that give us the essence of leading a family, namely a scripture-saturated soul that is staggered by the supremacy of God. That is what your family needs most from you. That is how to lead. And so dads and moms and everybody else, you need to know that God does not ask you to be passionate about him and then give you nothing to create that passion because what he has given is the holy kindling of the sacred text. And when you read it slow, and when you read it careful, and when you read it hungry to meet with the living God, that is the path to holy passion in the soul. But you see, and you know this, that the Christian life, it is not, it is not just personal, private praise of God, is it? No, no. It is also the public proclamation about God. It is delight and it is declaration. It is worship and it is witness. It is treasuring God to be sure, but it is also telling other people about God. And that's precisely what the poet understands. Look at verse 13. He says, with my lips I have declared all of the decrees of your mouth. Do you see what he's doing there in 12 and 13? Do you see the correlation between those two verses? Glad-hearted passions for God and glad-hearted proclamation about God are generated by the same source of power, namely the reactor of the word of God. I mean, you you see, it's something happened to this man's soul where he could not be silent about what he had read and what he had seen in the sacred text. Because notice, look at the verse. Notice how noisy and vocal this verse is. With my lips, I have declared all of the decrees of your mouth. Lips and mouth and declared. What's the point? The point is the psalmist was... And we must be a vocal people. Not just a gabby or talkative people, but a people who are vocal about truth, who are vocal about God, vocal about sin, vocal about hell and grace and salvation and about a sin-bearing Savior who's going to win it all in the end. We must be a vocal people. Because notice, notice the track record of the writer. He says, I have declared, I have done this. And what has he declared? All of the decrees of God's mouth. 
Let me think about this. He's talking about actual conversations that he had with actual people where he talked about what God had spoken in his word. And notice, notice, all of God's decrees. All of them. Not pick and choose. Preach only what is palatable. Preach only what is acceptable. All of God's decrees because he understood that anything less than that would be blood on our hands. Which makes me want to ask you, are you, are you holding out on people what they desperately need to hear? Are you holding out on people? Is there anything, are there any of God's decrees, anything which God has spoken and revealed of which you are fearful or ashamed to speak? Or have you bought into the cliche, which has zero foundation in the Bible, by the way, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary? The problem with that is that if there are no words, there is no gospel. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed. It is to be declared. The gospel is profoundly not, oh, look what a good person I am. Come and be like me. That's Mormonism. And that's damnation. The gospel is, God is holy. God is angry. God is love. God sent Christ. Christ has died. Christ has raised. Christ is king. Repent and believe. You could do that. You could proclaim that. And my point is very simply this. If we want to reach the world, starting with the children in our very own home, there is but one way it's going to happen. And it's going to happen is if we are emissaries proclaiming the riches of Christ to lost and ruined people, slaves to sin and spiritually dead. And you hear me very carefully. To be a great evangelist, you don't have to be a great evangelist. You just have to get your soul warmed by the sacred text and it will produce a passion in you to proclaim the gospel to perishing people. That's two. Two compelling reasons why the scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Christ on display, which leads us to reason number three. Reason number three, the unlimited pleasure contained in God's word. The unlimited pleasure contained in God's word. Because for book nerds, such as myself, and the Harrises, and the Huntleys, and others... We have such a thing as pleasure reading. Pleasure reading. You know what that means. That means books that you are not required to read, but you read them anyway because they bring such delight and pleasure to the soul. And for whatever reason, we never seem to put Bible in the category of pleasure reading, but we totally should. We totally should because our Optimum pleasure is one of the very things that the Word of God is designed to infuse into our souls. It's exactly what verses 14 through 16 describe. Look at the text. I mean, this is a, a buffet of biblical delight here. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, note this, I rejoice 
as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts. I look upon your ways. I delight myself in your statutes. I do not forget your word. And you can totally tell, can't you? Verses 14 through 16 are a distinct unit because what connects them together are joy and pleasure and delight. Because one of the things the word wants you to know about the word is, is that it is not there merely for the extraction of data, but for the experience of delight. That it's not only the source of truth that defines our beliefs, it supplies the very satisfaction that we crave in our souls. Look at verse 14 again. In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice. How much? As much as in all, all riches. Now, I know you heard the word joy because I set you up for it, but did you notice precisely what the poet said brought him his deepest joy? What did he say? What did he say exactly? He said, not just the testimonies are his delight, but the way of God's testimonies brought him delight. Do you see that? What does he mean? What does he mean? He he means the way. He means the path. He means the course. He means what your word tells me to do is the path of my deepest joy. That's what he's saying. In other words, he's talking about application. He's talking about life change and transformation, isn't he? I mean, you read the text and it's clear. It's clear the word of God did not chafe him. It did not irritate him. It did not annoy him. It did not get in the way of what he thought would make him happy. Rather, he perfectly understood that holiness was not the obstacle to his joy, but the opportunity for his joy. In other words, application. Authentic life change and transformation by the power of the word. The question is, the question is, do you this morning believe that that's even possible? What I mean is, do you believe, do you think that God's word really has the power to change you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the long-standing struggles in your life that you've never been able to conquer can lie in obedient subjection to the text? Do you believe that the deeply embedded patterns of struggle and sin in your life can be dislodged from your heart and driven to their knees before Christ by the power of the word? Do you believe that this morning? what I really want to know is, do you believe that that is the path to your deepest joy and delight? Because it is. Think about the message of the psalmist. Think about what he's communicating to us. Listen very carefully. Your highest happiness is found in the radical holiness produced by a passionate pursuit of God's word as your deepest delight. That's his message. I'm going to say that again. Your highest happiness is found in the radical holiness produced by a passionate pursuit of God's word as your deepest delight. In other words, when we are at our holiest, we are at our happiest. 
And that happy holiness or that holy happiness is produced precisely by the power of the word. And yet the question is how much? To what extent? How much pleasure and joy did the way of God's testimonies actually bring to this man's soul? Look what he says. Look at the end of verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice. How much exactly? As much as in all riches. That sound crazy to you? I mean, mean, right there, that is the greatest testimony of the pleasure of the word found in the word. Namely, that the joy it produces is like winning the lottery a thousand times over. Because you knew that, right? You knew that a righteous life that puts God on display is not produced ultimately by the power of the will but by a superior joy that triumphs over the pleasures of sin. You knew that, right? That a righteous life is not ultimately produced by the power of the will, but by a superior pleasure that triumphs over the pleasures of sin. That's what he's after. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The sacred poet understood something that many Christians never get a hold of in this life, namely that the holiness that God demands is the happiness that you desire. The sanctified life to which you are called is the satisfied life that you crave. This is incredible. This is exactly what Christ meant in Matthew 5, 6. When he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because that's the right thing to do? No, he says, because they will be satisfied. It just happens to be that the right thing to do is what is most satisfying. But notice in verse 16, we're almost done. Notice in verse 16, the psalmist has not finished extolling the pleasure contained in the word because look at the text and notice, notice that he declares it to God. In your statutes, I delight, I do not forget your word. You you know, it's interesting and you know this, that, that in a fallen world, too much of any one thing is never a good thing. Right? The, the unrestrained indulgence is not a virtue to be pursued, but a terrible moral flaw to be avoided at any cost. Anything, it, too much of anything is, is never a good thing. Too much sun, too much sleep, too much food, too much coffee. Maybe not coffee, scratch that from the record. <laughs> right? it, too much of anything is either going to ruin you or it's going to kill you. Don't you see? This is the one exception. The word of God is the one exception. Delight in God's word is the one time when unrestrained indulgence is the highest moral virtue that could possibly be pursued. Literally, the Hebrew says, in your statutes, I delight myself. In other words, I indulge myself with unrestrained indulgence. I desire And delight in the word of God. Because what it is is not just some book. But an encounter with the living God. Through the words on the page. I've mentioned this before. It must be memorable to me. And it is. To this day. 
I can still taste with great clarity the mango lime cheesecake I ate from the Cheesecake Factory 12 years ago. And the reason why is because the taste was simply unforgettable. And here it's the exact same thing. The pleasure of God's word tasted by the poet was so incredible that it was literally unforgettable. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, in your statutes, I delight myself. Here it is. I do not forget your word. I do not forget your word, he says. And that doesn't merely mean that he's got a good memory. But it's that the word was the pervasive influence in his life. I mean, we think about our lives. We have so many secular moments in our lives, don't we? So many feelings, so many responses, so many thoughts and desires and words and actions and reactions to things, and they are not governed by God's word at all. So many priorities, so many life decisions that we make, and we never even consider for a moment what God's word has to say. That's what he means when he says, I do not forget your word. No, this this is not going to be merely the unspoken assumption of his life. This is going to be the gravitational center of his life. And so men and husbands and dads and everybody else, the question is, if you want the kind of holiness and happiness the Bible guarantees, you are going to have to alter how you think about your relationship to this book. You're going to have to alter that. Because when you were born, the umbilical cord was cut. But when you are born again, you stay attached. Moment by moment, second by second to Christ through the umbilical cord of his word. That is, you must recall the word. You must rely upon the word as you go throughout your day. What I'm saying is you must integrate the word of God into everything that you're doing throughout the day. That's what the poet is after. And so the question is, dads and moms and everybody else, do you forget God's word? What I mean is, is it the pervasive influence of your life? Is it the umbilical cord of your life where you are moment by moment, second by second with desperation, clinging with great intensity to the sacred text, not just as true, but as a means of survival? That you see that it is a portal, the means, the mechanism to the very power and presence of God. That's what it is. But you see, That will only be that for you when the word of God is the deepest joy and delight of your soul. And so the question is, how does the word of God become that? How does it become that? How does the word of God become our deepest joy and delight? How do we experience the kind of pleasure and satisfaction about which the poet speaks? Because you notice, I skipped verse 15. But I didn't skip it, I saved it for last. And it's in verse 15 where the psalmist explains how to gain the access and joy and delight contained in the word. And it has everything to do with how we read the word. And I close with this. Look at the text. On your precepts, I meditate. And I look upon your ways. Do you see the connection? 
The fact that meditation is stuck in the middle between joy in verse verse 14 and delight in verse 16, get this, it is because meditation is how you access the joy and delight contained in the word. Do you see? I mean, this is really interesting. The Bible tells you how to read the Bible. And how to read the Bible is not like nuking a pizza pocket in the microwave, but rather slow and steady crock-pot contemplation of the sacred text where you read it again and again and again until your soul is awakened to what's there in the text. That's how to read the Bible. And when you read the Bible like that, men and dads and everybody else, then you will be holy. Then you will be happy. And when you are happy in God, you will be holy before God. When you are satisfied in God, then you will be sanctified by God. And that right there is the great win-win of the word of God. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. It isn't just a center of information. It isn't just a charter of our faith. It isn't just a, a creed. It has theology, but it's not just a theology book. It has history, but it is not merely a history book. Rather, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we see from Psalm 119 and other places that what it is is an encounter with you that That is the means by which we gain access to you and experience who you are. You mediate and manifest and minister your presence to us through the sacred text. And so, Lord, I pray for an increased appetite, not just for dads, but for everyone. I I plead with you for inclined cravings renewed cravings for your word that we would be, like 1 Peter 2.2 describes, like newborn babies longing for the pure milk of the word, that we would be persuaded in our hearts. Psalm 19, Lord, that your word is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Help us, Lord, help us. I pray that we would take whatever steps, however big or small, to make your word the supreme and central place in our lives and in our affections. We know that our joy and delight, that our holiness and happiness is dependent upon that. And we thank you for it in your son's name.